Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. A lost decade, Latin America has suffered one, and many economies now face the specter of one, not least because of the COVID-19 crisis. But the original lost decade happened in Japan. In the 90s, soaring debt and a sinking housing market led to deflation and halted growth in Japan. The nation responded with austerity. Middle-class families washed clothes in bathwater and skipped vacations altogether. The country suffered from prolonged economic stagnation, and it never really bounced back. In fact, weak growth, below-target inflation, and rising debt also marked the subsequent decade. Then, in 2011, a powerful earthquake off the coast of Japan triggered a massive tsunami. And good morning again, though the news this morning is not very good, not good at all. The earthquake, 8.9, one of the biggest ever, and then 35 minutes later, the tsunami racing at the speed of a jumbo jet. And that wall of water is primarily the cause of a death toll that is in the hundreds, but is certain to rise, with 88,000 people in Japan still unaccounted for. This morning, workers were evacuated from Reactor 3 of the crippled nuclear plant in Fukushima. Nuclear officials there are warned of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. Today, Japan's woes deepened with the introduction of water, fuel and electricity rationing and the need to find food and shelter for up to one million homeless. Upon taking office in 2012, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe made reviving Japan's economy a top priority. A second chance to make a mark. Shinzo Abe stages the comeback of his career to be named Japan's Prime Minister again. In terms of the top of the agenda here in Japan, it's probably three things. The economy, the economy, and then probably the economy. His signature economic policy program called Abenomics featured three policy arrows. Aggressive monetary policy, flexible fiscal policy, and growth-enhancing structural reform. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has a bold strategy, shock therapy for an economy that's been stagnant for 20 years. The stock market rose nearly 40% in his first five months in office. Businesses in Japan were talking about expansion for the first time in decades, and Tokyo's property market, Long Marabund, was stirring to life. But did it work? And what will happen to it now that Abe has resigned? Hi, Kathy. Hi. Hi, Kathy. This is Elmira. Kathy Matsui is here to help us answer these questions. Kathy is vice chair at Goldman Sachs Japan and the author of a new book titled How to Nurture Female Employees. Where are we reaching you? I'm in California, actually. This is my phone, so. She joins us from Monterey, California. So, Kathy, I want to jump straight into the implementation of Abenomics. Maybe we can start with the first arrow that Shinzo Abe had outlined, which is monetary easing. So not long after taking office, Abe appointed a new Bank of Japan governor and gave them the mandate to reach 2% inflation by 2015. For a country that hadn't seen 2% inflation since 1991, that was an ambitious goal. How was the Bank of Japan expected to achieve it? So first of all, we need to keep in mind the context of this decision of the Abe administration to pursue uh, QE under Governor Kuroda. Japan has been an economy 
that has suffered from prolonged deflation really off and on since the asset bubble burst in the late uh, 1980s. And so this was actually not the first time that the Japanese central bank pursued quantitative easing. It had obviously not worked. It worked momentarily back in the 90s and earlier part of 2000s, but never produced the desired outcome, which was a sustained exit from deflation. The previous regime, frankly, was at a point sort of throwing up their hands in the air. And there's this excellent Japanese saying called shikata ga nai, which is a very handy saying when you're a policymaker and you've exhausted all options uh, on the policy front and there's nothing more that can be done. It cannot be helped, is the literal translation of shikata ga nai. I think that what really perhaps was different this time around uh, was the fact that it wasn't just the tool of quantitative easing in isolation. There were other uh, factors involved that helped get the economy out of deflation, namely fiscal uh, stimulus measures, uh, a whole slew of variety of reforms that helped not only on the supply side, but also on the demand side as well to get the economy uh, not just out of deflation, but actually growing, because that was certainly the key to sustained in inflation uh, pressures uh, over the longer term. And it worked, at least at first. Within a year of Abe taking office, inflation expectations rose and the yen depreciated by about 22%, making exports cheaper and spurring economic growth. At the same time, Abe took quick action to launch the second arrow, fiscal policy. Most notably, he announced a stimulus bill worth 10.3 trillion Japanese yen, or $116 billion. This represented a significant departure from what other advanced economies were doing, especially in Europe, where austerity was the order of the day. Workers across Europe have held mass protests against ongoing economic austerity measures. We have seen demonstrations today in Brussels, in Spain, in Ireland, all over austerity measures. And we're deeply unhappy. We don't want to end up without this safety net, which across Europe exists and needs to be maintained, and that is what we have to fight for. And given that Japan's debt-to-GDP ratio exceeded 186% in 2012, its fiscal health was certainly a concern. People thought it was reckless. Many observers felt that, wow, here's an economy that's already deeply indebted fiscally, and here they go spending more money and at a cost of capital that is essentially zero. You know, how is irresponsible is that? But at the end of the day, the Abe administration made the call that without doing all of this and giving it, you know, your all, so to speak, on both fiscal and monetary easing, the likelihood of success was going to be quite low, just given the historical track record. So despite that pushback, despite the criticism, the government felt if it was going to do it, it had to go all in. Abenomics did attempt to offset fiscal risk, notably by increasing the consumption tax twice. 
We start with Japan's decision to increase sales tax despite concerns over the effect on its economy. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has ended more than a year of speculation and debate. This as Tokyo seeks to raise more revenue to repay its debts and fund services for its ageing population. But that policy has been blamed for lessening the impact of the so-called shock therapy of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Were the tax increases a mistake? One can argue that the timing of those increases were not appropriate given where Japan was uh, in the economic cycle, uh, both occasions. And of course, at the end of the day, it is fiscal tightening, not fiscal ease. And there, of course, was uh, concerns that aren't we going at you know cross purposes here, but keep in mind that Japan then and still today suffer from a very large and growing fiscal deficit, and one of the commitments the Abe administration made back in late 2012, early 2013, when it came to power, was that it would address this issue of fiscal health. So while, of course, there was criticism about tightening fiscal policy through raising the consumption tax both times, and there frankly was uh, a bit of political capital that had to be expended to get both of those hikes through, if you look at Japan in a global context, you know, a consumption or VAT tax at, you know, 10% is still very low in a global and especially G7 context. I will also add, though, there was another lesser known or lesser understood aspect of fiscal reform that occurred under Abe's watch about four months into the Abe administration in the spring of 2013. Japan's government, against a huge amount of opposition, decided to finally implement what we would call a taxpayer ID system for the first time in Japanese history. You know, think about that. The third largest economy in the world until a few years ago never had a social security number system or taxpayer ID system, which means what? This actually helps explain this strange phenomenon we observe in Japan, which is that Japan, despite having some of the highest tax rates in the world, especially for personal income, collects very little tax revenues. Uh, its tax revenue ratio to GDP is one of the lowest in the G7. And I believe it is partly because it's hard to track people. The problem I see in Japan is not so much the consumption tax and the timing of those hikes, but rather a more a deeper problem, which has been the taxation system, especially of what I would call direct taxation, has been broken. The My Number system, which resembles Social Security in the United States, went into effect in 2016. It was an unpopular reform. But, Kathy notes, anti-austerity protests in Europe helped to push it through the Japanese legislature. I think you have to think about the period after around the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. You know, around that time, Japanese television uh, news channels were all broadcasting the same content, which was, oh my goodness, the European sovereign debt crisis, you know, looking at 
fires in the streets in, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, in Greece. And then usually at the end of these episodes, they'd always show the same graph, which was essentially a ranking of fiscal debt to GDP ratios. And the commentators would get on and say, so ladies and gentlemen, you've just seen what's happening in Europe, but did you know that Japan has a larger fiscal debt to GDP ratio than all of those countries? And I think that really stirred uh, a sense of panic and crisis, not just within the government, but finally with uh, among the people to say, okay, there is no magic wand recipe or, or formula that can erase this debt. It's very simple. The, the same solution that faces Greece, Italy, Spain is the same for Japan, i.e. the only way out of this debt hole is to A, raise taxes, uh, and B, grow your economy. I think the context allowed for Prime Minister Abe to say, look, we all know this is a problem. We all know that Japan is an outlier in this regard, not having a taxpayer ID, ID system. We all understand it's going to be very complicated. It will take years to transition. But if we don't start now, when will we start? A key objective of the first two arrows of Abenomics was to buy time to implement the third, structural reform. And one of Japan's biggest structural challenges is its rapidly aging population. Japan's leaders are working on a raft of new measures to encourage citizens to get married and have children in a bid to boost the country's flagging birth rate. Japan's elderly people accounted for 28% of its population in 2018, the highest proportion in the world. With fewer babies being born and a rapidly aging population, Japan is facing an unprecedented demographic crisis with vast social, economic and political repercussions. We all know that Japan is the fastest aging population in the developed world. Within 35 years, 40% of its workforce will shrink, disappear. But some of those numbers are hard to grasp. So I felt, well, maybe there's another statistic uh, that I could use to convey the message, you know, more forcefully. And so I just happened to live in a country in Japan where there are a lot of pets. And I discovered that the number of pets was much more than I had had expected. And these are not all pets. These are registered cats and dogs only. So they don't count your hamster or your turtle. Then I compared that to, I was just curious, the number of children under the age of 15. And of course, lo and behold, found that Japan does have more pets, registered cats and dogs, than children under the age of 15. Abe needed a way to increase the size of the labor force. After all, those cats and dogs aren't going to pick up briefcases and head to the office. So he turned to a largely untapped resource in Japan, women. During his five years in power, one of Abe's top economic goals has been to expand Japan's workforce and increase productivity by seeing more women employed. The approach has become known as womenomics. Some experts say that if Japan manages to get in line with the other G7 nations when it comes to women in the workforce, the country's GDP per capita would increase by as much as 5%. Kathy has been working on this issue for decades. She coined the term womenomics. She says that one of the biggest employment obstacles facing Japanese women is cultural, 
namely the expectation that women would fulfill the role of the traditional wife-slash-mother that was entrenched in Japan after World War II. I think that the issues are rooted in, frankly, Japan's uh, post-war economic legal and tax structure. Imagine back in the 1950s and 60s when Japan was essentially emerging from the ashes of World War II, structured uh, its legal system, its labor contracts, its tax code around the concept and the idea that the traditional, quote, household in Japan was made up of a breadwinner, which was usually the male, the housewife, who usually stayed at home and did not work outside the home, and at least two children. The problem has been that these, frankly, outmoded legal tax um, and, frankly, societal norms or mores have been so embedded in the psyche of Japanese society that it's been very hard and they become very rigid and it's been very difficult to push or, or propose different ways of doing things. But there is good news on this front arising from unlikely sources, the demographic crisis and years of slow economic growth. That combination has essentially forced the government to say, well, wait a minute, we have a very educated, skilled, talented segment of the population which is very large, half the population, that is not being fully tapped. And what can we do about this? So that has resulted in remarkably uh, a fantastic increase in female labor participation, which used to be nothing special in the G7, pretty low, to today reaching about 72%, obviously pre-COVID, which tops the U.S.'s rate of 67 and the average for the EU of 63%. Now, of course, the majority of these Japanese women are working part-time, and we need to encourage both the women and the employers for these women to work more full-time or at least longer hours so that their you know, full potential can be maximized um, in the economy. As Kathy notes, more than half of all women in Japan work in part-time, low-paid positions. That's compared to just 12% of working men. Again, this gap is largely explained by the expectations of mothers. In Japan's often brutal work culture, juggling a full-time position and raising children can be particularly difficult. In 2013, nearly 70% of women weren't returning to work after having children. Abe implemented a number of measures to help change this. To give the government a little bit of credit, today, for example, Japan has probably one of the top-ranked parental leave benefits in the developed world. Both the mother and the father each get one year, and their compensation during that time is essentially equivalent to as much as 60 to 80% of their pre-leave pay, which I understand, you know, outside of the Nordics, is one of the best in the developed world right now. Of course, every Japanese mother takes that leave, uh, pretty much close to that leave. The fathers are way behind, so we need to encourage more Japanese papas to take paternity leave. But at least the system is set up uh, in a way that is very generous. And I know in the United States, for instance, where I come from, uh, that is far from reality, especially at the federal level. Ultimately, Abe's womenomic strategy yielded results. The number of employed women in Japan surged by more than 3 million, 
from 26.0 million in 2012 to 29.7 million in 2018. But there is still a long way to go. Kathy, has something been missing from Abe's womenomics agenda or its implementation? I think that the main disappointment with the womenomics agenda under Abe's watch is this continued dearth of women in leadership roles. If we look at Japan's parliament, particularly the lower house, the more important part of parliament, uh, the ratio of female legislators has been stagnant at about 10%, which is lower than Saudi Arabia and Libya. If we look at female manager ratios, 15% or less, you know, well below less than half of the U.S. and European equivalents, women board directors uh, in the single digits also extremely low. So I think that's probably the biggest area of criticism or the homework that was left undone, so to speak, under Abe's watch. But at the same time, the responsibility for fixing the leadership challenges does not solely lie in the hands of the Japanese government. Many of the challenges that women face are not simply related to uh you know, the legal infrastructure, the tax code, etc., but has a lot more to do with how are they being treated within organizations? How do they themselves feel? Uh, do they feel confident enough to pursue an ambitious opportunity, you know, within their companies, etc.? We really need to tackle the mindset, the um, biases that many of us have within organizations on how to manage uh, women to maximize and leverage their full potential. Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has announced he is stepping down because of persistent health problems. He apologized that he was resigning with a year left of his term and before fulfilling several key political pledges. In late August, Abe took much of the world by surprise by announcing that he was leaving office. Japan has a new leader after nearly eight years. Yoshihide Suga has officially been named Prime Minister, and he's unveiled a cabinet with many familiar faces. Suga's challenge is to pick up from where Abe left off and make sure the 20s are not a wasted decade. Suga is expected to serve until September 2021, the end of predecessor Shinzo Abe's original term. His successor, Yoshihide Suga, is widely expected to stay the course. Suga has promised to pick up where Abe left off. What priorities is he likely to tackle next? So Prime Minister Suga, remember, was the chief cabinet secretary under Prime Minister Abe. So essentially, if Prime Minister Abe was Batman, Prime Minister Suga was Robin. It's important to emphasize that many of the reforms that Prime Minister Abe achieved under his watch were actually the brainchild of uh, Mr. Suga. So I mentioned the taxpayer ID system, but other ideas that came directly from Suga himself were things like inbound tourism. You know, Japan was shockingly ranked very low in terms of numbers of inbound tourists annually, not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, it was 8 million tourists. That was one-tenth of France. Today, it's 
uh, of course, pre-COVID, it reached over 30 million. Uh, Second is agricultural reforms, trying to get an economy which uh, has a very powerful interest group called the Farmers to reform has been on the agenda for pretty much every administration since World War II. Now, looking forward, surely Suga-san will continue, for example, pursuing trade pacts uh, across particularly the rest of Asia. He's going to continue to help revitalize the uh, rural parts of the nation with more inbound tourism. But he's also keen, for instance, on improving overall productivity and efficiency. And he's just created a new agency called the Digital Agency. We all know that while Japan may, to the outside world, look quite technologically advanced, in many respects with uh, related to government processes or just the way that people do work, it's still rather analog. But I think one of Suga-san's perhaps brilliant uh, areas of expertise is the fact that he knows that a lot of things don't change in Japan because they're stuck or trapped in bureaucratic silos. And this is what stymies many important reforms from getting across the finish line. But Suga-san personally has spent hours and days and weeks investing in relationships with the heads and the leadership of each of these ministries uh, for the very purpose of trying to break down those silos, uh, convincing people that it's not productive, and if we work together and join forces, that we can get you know, uh, more efficiency, more productivity uh, boosted in the country uh, than in any time in, in its history. So it's a grand project, but I think it's, it's excited a lot of people in the business community because finally we have a government that is not just talking about digital transformation, but is prepared to actually do something about it. So uh, we're excited about this initiative. When Abenomics was introduced in 2013, Japan was an anomaly in many ways. Today, that's no longer the case. Facing an economic downturn from the COVID-19 pandemic, most developed countries have few options but to implement aggressive stimulus policies. Kathy, at the start of this conversation, you mentioned that many were skeptical of Abenomics when it was launched eight years ago. But you've since come around. As other governments confront low inflation and stagnant growth, what lessons can they learn from Japan? I think some of the key lessons learned are that deflation is poison, that once you fall into an environment where prices are falling continuously, that that lends itself to a downward spiral for the economy for corporate uh, and household sentiment that is extraordinarily difficult to get yourself out of. And so to the extent that an exogenous shock or pandemic like COVID or the next pandemic or the next environmental disaster or shock hits the world and sends it into a downturn, we must do everything and anything in our power to ensure that we don't fall into this vicious cycle of deflation because it is poisonous and it's very, very difficult to get out once you're in. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Kathy Matsui, the vice chair of Goldman Sachs Japan. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. 
We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Rusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. <laughs>